what's happening, everybody? And I hope y'all are hanging in there and maybe even treating yourselves to a little something nice every now and again. Hell, maybe even a super nice snare drum from today's guest. Oh! Speaking of which, today's guest is someone I've wanted to talk to for some time, and Drum Ninja, an all-around super interesting guy, and Ron Danette, both of Ron Danette's snare drums, and more recently, the George Wade Drumline. Ron and I get into the history of George Wade drums, the inspiration of his signature titanium snare drums, evolving hardware geared towards modern functionality, tensioning drums, snare beds, and a whole lot more. And do keep an eye for Ron's live stream with drummer Ruben Spiker, who was also recently a guest on the podcast. And that's going down May 15th on Facebook Live, so do keep your ears and eyes peeled for that. Check it out and get yourself some knowledge. I'll also include some more info in the description of this episode. Crash Pain Boom Podcast can be found on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Luminary, Google Play, Podbean, and Amazon Music Podcast. Feel free to check out any of the previous 200 plus episodes. Give me a like, a subscription, and or a positive review. The support is appreciated. Shout out to my sponsor, the one and only New Orleans Record Press. If you're looking to release vinyl, hit them up at neworleansrecordpress.com. Check out all the electroplating, mastering, design, packaging, vinyl, coloring options. And they got that real-time quote generator to keep tabs and all that goodness. You can also print 12 and 7-inch records at 150 and 180 gram variants. And they do small runs of 100 and larger runs up into the thousands. So hit them up and that's neworleansrecordpress.com. As venues and musicians weather these tough times, do keep tabs on artists' live streams, lessons, tutorials, and master classes from your favorite musicians, merch, or physical releases that are for sale, as well as websites like SaveOurStages.com looking to assist venues in these tough times until we can open her up and get back to high-fiving, having some drinks, hanging out, and just rocking out to some live-ass music again. Good law. All right, without further ado, Ron Danette. Zinnett Snares, George Way Drums, May 15th live feed. Keep your ears and eyes open for it. Hope y'all enjoy it. Crash Bang Boom. Crowds go mad with joy. Yes! All right, I'm here with Snare Drum Master and whose snares bear his name as well as drum craftsman for the relaunch of the George Way Drumline. The man, the myth, the legend, Ron Dunette. Ron, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Pretty good, man. I'm, I'm psyched to talk to you uh, sort of both about the origins of your snare line. I love your snares uh, and uh, as well as the, the George Way uh, connection, what you've been doing with those kits and everything. But uh, for starters, man, uh, where are you located? I know you're in Canada, haven't spoken to uh, Ruben Spiker previously. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, how, where are you in Canada and how has the last year treated you? Because I know obviously a pretty bizarre year there and especially for drum manufacturing and whatnot. So how was, how was 2020 and, and what's, what's going on in Canada? Well, um, I'm located in, in Vancouver, uh, Delta specifically. So, uh, you know, that's the biggest center near me. And uh, it's been a fantastic year. I, I mean, all things considered and uh, all the indications that I have from my industry colleagues and retailers, I think we're all waiting for the, uh, for the other shoe to drop because it's been surprisingly good. Wow. Yeah, probably in the same way that, you know, um, you know, things like bikes and sporting goods and that right. kind of thing are, are in high demand and and uh, maybe even in short supply. I know that there's been there have definitely been some supply problems. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think for the industry, maybe we haven't felt it yet. Um, I know that there's going to be an increase. Um, and I know that in prices for metal, and I know that there's going to be some shortages. Mm-hmm. They're already starting to make their way down the line. I, I was lucky in that um, my bad timing, <laughs> yeah. of which you're you're quite familiar, <laughs> actually worked out for me this time. So, you know, I have a a, a really good inventory of everything that I need. And I know some of my colleagues don't necessarily have that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been a really, oddly enough, probably one of the best years I've had. Wow. That's crazy, man. <laughs> and, well, you know, when I think about it, I go, when this thing first hit, I thought, wow, this is going to have a really significant impact. It's like, 
all the all the touring acts are going to be down and you know sure. and all the all, all the other smaller venues and that didn't happen and i guess that's because you know the guys who are out there touring generally speaking they're not paying for anything and they're not buying anything yeah. and um you know maybe a little bit less from the, from the weekend players or the soft cedar shows but damn i'm glad uh, uh, people are you know drummers are still drumming and uh my assumption is that not having you know the option to spend disposable income traveling or um or or on other things has meant that uh, yeah it's time for a new snare drum yeah man i love it well you mentioned metals and potentially a shortage of it in the future if that's the case but when sourcing the metals be it titanium brass aluminum steel copper etc uh for the snare drums uh is that a process where you're you're melting said metals into a mold or are you bending uh pre-cut sheets what is the process of of getting those metals and then actually forming them into the shells for the drums oh well without giving too much away <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, <laughs> no I, i'm not actually smelting my own metals boy boy wouldn't that be something yeah right um no but um as far as the, my titanium supply goes that is a proprietary um formula and, and i did have to that's probably one of the reasons why i'm well positioned is because when i buy that i do have to buy a significant quantity Right. And um, I still have an excellent inventory of that, so mm-hmm. that was fine. S- same thing with stainless, yeah. uh, although I can imagine the price of that is going up. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so. Wow. I'm good. Well- yeah, seriously. Well, you mentioned the titanium thing, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. But going back sort of to the origins of it, uh, when you started the Danette snare line, what is it that you felt you wanted from a snare that maybe you felt was missing from the snares you'd played previously? Well, the, the story goes, uh, and I've told it many times, it was a, uh, it was a perfect storm of, of circumstances that sort of brought it all together. Um, it was around 89, and I went to Australia. It was when mountain bikes were just coming online, and I bought a used one that had some titanium components on it, one of which fell off on a ride in Australia, and uh, I picked it up, and I, I just assumed that it was aluminum or steel and later learned that it was titanium. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what I remember most is looking at this tube going, oh, this is really thin yeah. and so strong, you know, and then I got back home and I happened to be reading a, a book by a local author um, in which he talked about this place called Boeing surplus mm. and being a, a big aviation buff and always being interested in that stuff. I, I took a trip down when Boeing surplus was still open and um, among all the amazing stuff that they had there uh, that I missed so much in the back lot, they had sheets of titanium and I was like, Oh yeah. So um, bought a couple of sheets threw them in the back of the truck, drove them home, and 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 began the process of uh, of, of experimenting and developing. And, and the other thing that happened around the same time was uh, uh, Keplinger. And mm-hmm. uh, that was when AOT was still uh, uh, a viable company at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember going in there and, and seeing a a prototype version with wood hoops. And I was like, God, that's so amazing. And then I picked it up and I went, it's so heavy. I don't know if I necessarily dig that. Yeah. And um, it was right around that time that, that all these really heavy drums were coming online. And I thought, ah, you know what? It's easy to make a heavy drum. You, you can add so much weight. I want to go the other way. And so, you know, the combination of having access to titanium, uh, just, started that whole experimental process and and i'm going to talk about this because i want to talk about this (laughs) because around that time people said oh you weren't the first to do it there was another company in japan or katano and they're making drums and i looked into that and i guess tama had made a titanium kit but i think the thing about that was is that those shells were three millimeters thick i think four millimeters and Mm. You know, it's like anything. It's like, hey, I invented the tire, uh, but it's 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 square. Right. And someone comes along and goes, well, that's a great idea. It probably worked better if it was round. Um, so, you know, I I don't argue the the concept of 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 who's first 
mm-hmm. I'm more more interested in um, who is best and and perfecting and optimizing the use of the of the metal mm-hmm. for that application. Now, if you have titanium and you can make a really thin drum shell, well, well, why wouldn't you? Why would you want to make it thick? That doesn't make any sense to me. Just make it out of aluminum and save yourself a whole bunch of money. Right. So that's all. All of that came about, and you know, zip ahead some 20 plus years later and that's when the uh, international titanium association recognized the work that i had done in popularizing uh, the use of titanium in the musical instrument industry um when i started and and as i like to say well you know i i started making titanium drums not because everybody else was it was because nobody else was right and now it's like, yeah, everybody's got their particular version or, you know, their, um, you know, knockoff. And, and it's been used in, um, you know, other applications, you know, DW mm-hmm. made a titanium footboard. So, yeah. Gotcha. Well, when you uh, initially started pursuing the sort of titanium route, uh, do you recall how long it was from the initial uh, germ of that idea, so to speak, to where you actually got it to the point where you were thinking, you know what, I've, I've got this thing fairly nailed down, uh, be it in, you know, design sonically, whatever, just to be to a comfortable point where you're like, I think I got this. I imagine that was a process. It seems to me, and I'm guessing because I'm old and I don't have a great memory, <laughs> yeah. um, that it was probably a year from start to finish before, Wow. Um, you know, because you go through all of that. Uh, all of those iterations where I went, okay, let, if it's titanium, let's let's see how thin we can make it. That was always the goal, to make it mm-hmm. the thinnest, lightest. And I went through shells that were much thinner than the ones that I'm currently making, mm-hmm. you know, what, what ultimately became the industry standard. And I had some problems with those, had some issues. And, hmm. you know, specifically one of those issues was, well, it's fine as a drum, but once you remove the material to make a snare bed, you're weakening that particular side. And when you apply pressure by virtue of opposing drum heads, mm-hmm. you have this bulging effect. So the real work in developing a Danette classic titanium came in finding that balance between making as thin as possible, but also making it functional as a drum where you weren't dealing with those flex issues. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I was the guy who did all that work. That's crazy, man. When I hear titanium, I think of, of, of like substantial weight, but it sounds like uh, you could make these things pretty thin to where there wasn't an, an overbearing weight. But I imagine in going too thin, that sonically would change some things. But then you found the right uh, density or, or uh, you know, whatever measurements for the thickness of the shell uh, at some point. What is it about the sort of modern um, thickness that you found that was seemed to be sonically like the right spot as opposed to the thinner one? Well, one of the things that I learned as I went along was that drum shells, and it doesn't have to be metal because it really applies to wood as well or anything that you use, they're really weight sensitive. Mm -hmm. Um, And the best analogy is that, you know, a, a, a drum shell performs very much in the way, same way that a cymbal does. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you have your paper-thin, heisty crash, uh-huh. you, you know, that has a, that's just by virtue of the weight, it's going to have a very low fundamental note. Mm-hmm. Whereas you take your um, heisty, um mega bell death metal ride, the, the fundamental note, that cymbal is going to be very heavy, very thick, and the fundamental note is going to go up. Now, one of the things that we do as drummers, unfortunately, is we don't take a gestalt approach to a drum all too all too often we're dissecting it into pieces we're going we're talking drum shells we're talking plies we're talking Mm. lugs we're talking this and both the beauty and the mystery and the magic of a drum is you know we don't play a drum shell we Mm. play a drum right and so there's all of those other concerns that go into it that probably have as much if not more impact on the ultimate sound of the drum as the shell itself, mm-hmm. but as an, but as a basic starting point, knowing that if you're, you're dealing with, for example, right now, uh, I'm just doing a run of a model that I made a few years ago. Um, it's a very heavy, heavy six millimeter carbon steel shell, mm. not really my thing, but there's a demand for it. And I'm like going, well, I'm not, 
I like to force my uh, uh, my own preferences on other drummers, but um, yeah. you know, hey, I'm, 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 I can make one of these the Nat style, and those are they just prove everything that I've ever thought that they don't have a lot of mid range, they don't have a lot of bottom end, mm-hmm. but one thing that they do really well is they is they generate a frequency spike there's lots of high end mm-hmm. they start high in the low low in the tension process you're going this is a high pitched drum and then you start applying more tension to the top head and you're going well we didn't start at the basement we started it at, at the 20th floor and now we're going up to the 50th mm-hmm. so you know when you're talking about heavy drums that's why i call it the sledge it only does one thing it just does it really well and that is cut through amplified music Mm-hmm. because of that frequency spike you're hearing this like ripping you know equivalent of a bell uh, a cymbal bell ripping through uh, you know lots of amplified guitars right whereas when you're getting you know diametrically opposed you're getting a titanium which is a you know, among the thinnest lightest shells other than magnesium mm-hmm. um you're starting with a very, very low fundamental note. And you can feel that in the drum when you start applying tension to the head. It mm. only takes a couple of, you know, maybe a turn and a half on each uh, lug, and you're going, I'm starting from the basement here, mm. but it sounds like a drum, and it doesn't sound like you're making it do something it doesn't want to do. Mm. Um, and for me, that's always been the test of a good snare drum is, when is it performing like a playable drum, and and, and when does it actually become a drum that is playable so yeah it's a low pitched it doesn't have a lot of tension but you're hitting it it's going yeah it's a bushy sound but it's a good bushy sound it doesn't Mm. sound like it wants to be you know up tensioned and then you can take it through that range and that really is the big that's why i say that's the sign of a good drum is when you have so much latitude with the drum head that you're you're traveling through the land of you know, 10 by 14 marching snare drums at the low end mm. and five and a half by 14 or five inch piccolo drums all without ever making the drum uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's ideally what you want, a, a broad tuning range within a drum um, to, to sort of approximate all of those sounds. And usually you end up having to have quite a few drums or at least in my case that seems seems to be the case because I have like 70s Ludwig Superphonics 5x14s and those are it's funny when you pick them up because there's hardly anything to them and and considering that that's one of the more recorded drums in in recording history it's interesting that a drum that doesn't seem to at least from a weight perspective seem to have too much to it is one of those drums that that has been so well recorded and performed so well under mic. So that's interesting that the titanium is on the lighter end of the spectrum and then still has this really broad tuning range. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I would want out of a snare drum. So yes, to, to answer your question. <laughs> and I can tell you one thing. Yeah. You can, you can color them up a little bit, but microphones don't lie. Right. And you know, once you've spent enough time in the studio or gosh, even playing with an EAD, you, you really, those things strip away, or, or should I say, they expose all of the flaws of a drum. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I enjoy going into the studio with these as much as I do, and and um, I'm, I'm planning on doing more. In fact, on the on the 15th, I'm going in to do my second cam show of the year, nice. which I'm really excited about. And well, I'll be going in with Ruben. Awesome. So. Yeah. <laughs> that's killer man uh you had mentioned uh i think you mentioned bearing edges but at the very least i know that it's it's they're the same way that well like with most drums obviously you have everything and snares even more so because you have snare beds you have the snares themselves you have the tension of the snares you know uh different heads obviously top to bottom and then balancing all that up with the the make makeup of the shell and everything but there is always a lot of talk at least with toms i feel like maybe not so much with snares about you know whether it's round over bearing edges, uh, whether it's round over or 45 degree or, or a combination of both, or if it's re-rings attached to a smaller or a thinner shell, etc. But Ruben Spiker was saying part of the magic he feels like in your snares is the deep snare bed and sort of how that affects the response of the drum, uh, possibly even more so than the bearing edge with the, with the snares. What is it? What would you say is the significance of your sort of snare bed design? Well, I'm glad Ruben's listening because he's a good study, and uh, that makes me happy that he, he gets that. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've always thought, and I've proved it time and time again, and not to be misquoted on this, I'm not saying that bearing edges aren't important. Mm -hmm. They are. But I just think that they're so overthought. They're like the scapegoat where they get all of the blame for all of the problems of a drum. Mm -hmm. And really, most of the time, it's, you got the wrong drum. Right. You're looking for you're looking to get a sound out of this, and that's not the right drum to do it with, or the mm-hmm. right size, or mm-hmm. the right head, mm-hmm. or the right tension. It's a whole bunch more, and yet, you know what? No, I I, I think if I get the bearing edges, I, I I I could make a lot of money doing bearing edges for guys. Yeah. Uh, but I'd just be doing them a disservice, and most of the time, I just turn these guys away. Interesting. Bring me the drum. I take it off. I look at it. I'm going. Let's do this. How does this sound? It's like, yeah. All I spent was a half an hour showing you exactly what I said. Bearing edges aren't like ice skates. Mm-hmm. You don't have to sharpen them to make them work better. Uh-huh. And without getting too deep into it, here's a great analogy that I use in my workshops. If we could just picture for a minute the, a drum head as a 360-degree round guitar string. Mm-hmm. Now, every, most drummers are familiar with how a guitar works. You have a bridge and you have a nut. And in between that, resting on the top of that is a guitar string. Mm-hmm. You apply tension to the string until it hits a certain tension, it generates a certain frequency, and it is in tune. Mm-hmm. Nothing about the nut or the bridge, the angle that it's cut at, has anything to do with achieving that frequency. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, my You don't hear guitar players going, yeah, no, I, I think I need to get my uh, nut and bridge cut to a 45 degree. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 six, six, 60 degree and a round over. It's like, <laughs> wh- why, does it, why does it matter? Yeah. It, it's still going to be an E string when you're done with it, and the only thing that matters is the, the contact point, where it goes, where it leaves the edge towards the inside on both sides. And so bearing edges are more kinetic Mm -hmm. than anything. From an engineering design standpoint, you should be able to look at a drum and then look at the head that you're putting on the drum and go, hmm, I run my fingers on the inside of the head. I see that this is a curved radius. Mm -hmm. And I understand now that, you know what, probably a curved, something that fits, conforms to the shape of that is probably going to work best. Mm-hmm. And, and, I'm, and, and I'm thinking more specifically on, on, a, on a wood shell there where you have a, a thicker shell as opposed to a titanium or stainless drum that I make. Right. The advantage of that is it's not the, all this, you know, this, I'm sorry, I, I, I kind of call nonsense on it where it's like, oh, more head contact and therefore there's more resonance. You know, I just, no, nah, no, nah, come on. <laughs> what it is and what it provides is a, a better kinetic experience when you're putting the tensioning key on the drum and applying tension to the head, that feedback coming to you through your hand is what matters. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just, I'm, I'm almost made it my life's work to like try to explain to, you know, we, we don't, tuning is, is a bit of a misnomer. You're actually tensioning the drum. Mm-hmm. And that information that is coming through your hand, I, I, I do these workshops, say everybody here has stripped a nut. They've taken a wrench, they put it on a nut, they've applied tension, went, oh, if I do, if I do one more quarter turn, I'm going to strip this thing. And sure enough, bang, the thing strips and you're done. Mm-hmm. Well, that skill of being able to apply just enough tension or, 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 or control the application of the tension, that's the skill in what we call tuning a drum. Mm-hmm. It's applying tension and then taking that sonic product and arranging it in intervals that makes sense. That's the beauty of a drum and a drum set is that mm-hmm. unlike a guitar where it doesn't function, if you don't have it tuned, you don't have those six strings tuned exactly to the exact frequency, it's not a guitar. It's out of tune, can't do it. Mm-hmm. A drum, it's intervals. So you can do your 6, 8, 10, 12, 13, 14, and you can move those intervals further apart or closer together, and mm-hmm. it's always going to make sense. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. That's harder to do than a guitar. Right, for sure. Absolutely. That's the hence the mysticism around 
tuning drums themselves. I mean, the only way I, Benny Greb said it best, he's like, if you feel like you're not good at, at necessarily at tuning drums, buy some heads, get a, a, some heads and start changing them more frequently. And you will start to figure it out because you're doing it more frequently. I think because of how long heads can last, people do them infrequently or get someone else to do them. And in doing so, don't really sort of develop a sense of maybe some of that tension and how to get those heads to speak together. And it's definitely an art. It's not easy, but it's also far less, uh, it's far more nebulous than just saying connect a guitar to a tuner and the tuner tells you exactly what it is. You know, so it's it is harder, right? And all of these these uh, tuning aids that we have, those are basically versions of guitar tuners, right? And you know, to me, I'm like going, you know, hey, if they work for you, great. Uh, for me, and and Benny and I agree on this. We just say it in a different way. I go, why should your ability to to tension a drum and create intervals? be any easier than the actual performance and playing you practice drums why don't you practice tensioning sure and 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 if you don't get the first if, if you put put your heads on and you're and you're twisting away and you can't get the sound go back to zero and start over again yep that's the thing to do and, and chances are if you, like i said if you can't get the sound you're hearing or the sound that you're looking for it's 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 not the bearing edges it's the drum or the heads, or uh, or the or the size of the drum, mm -hmm. or the material that that isn't pairing up with the sound that you're hearing in your head. So yeah, people should practice. I mean, <laughs> yeah. get good at it. Sure. I chip away at this a little bit, and I probably shouldn't, but you know, I I, I see some of these. Uh, I'm going to show you how to tune drums in a in a ten thousand foot warehouse with a lazy Susan and all the time in the world, and I'm like going, no, nah, you know what you should do. Put in a set of head, put your headphones on, put some plugs in, turn on some death metal, and try and and try and get the intervals right on your drum kit that way without ever <laughs> hearing them. Because right. the fact is, for most of us, we're applying that skill in a pressure, you know, high pressure situation. Yeah. You know, at a noisy bar, um, under under, uh, you know, in a studio, it's like, no, you should be able to do this. You know, I'll tell you yeah. a story. I love watching drum techs work mm -hmm. because that's their gig. And right. uh, guys like Lauren Wheaton, I watched him swap out the heads on a on a, on a Carlock kit once, two up and two down. Before he even put a stick to the heads, he had applied a certain amount of tension to all of them. Mm -hmm. He was ninety percent there. Yeah. The rest was tweaking. And I'm like going, how does he do that? Why is it like that? Why are they so close right out of the box? He didn't even didn't spend a whole bunch of time there, you know, doing the girlfriend tuning thing with his finger in the middle of it and tapping mm -hmm. around the edges. It's like, it's because he knows. Right. It's because he knows how, how to apply attention and his hands are familiar with it and he's practiced. Mm-hmm. Well, there is one caveat there that I would say on older kits, if you're doing it according to actual tension within the tension rod as you screw it into down into the lug, on older kits, if you don't keep those greased, you, the feedback that you get can be different across those. So it's easier to do that, I would think, with uh, more modern kits that are, have more modern, well-tuned uh, hardware and tension rods and this and that and the other, because I definitely have with some of my older uh, vintage drums, again, maybe it could be a little rust or something, and and you think, oh, well, that seems about it. And then you realize that maybe that's not quite it. So maybe with older drums, I think there might be a little bit of an importance in sort of, again, lubing up those uh, the tension rods to get, have more even feedback in the tension as you apply those the tension on the, on the rods. You won't get any argument out of me that a set of drums is a high-quality, valuable, important, piece of, of of it's a musical instrument and it deserves all of the maintenance and kindness and care that you would apply to a violin yeah. or an expensive guitar or anything else sure that i've always viewed it that way that's why you know I, a few years ago i started shipping binette drums and cases i'm like going this thing this is a, I, I i poured a lot of myself into every drum that i make Mm -hmm. and and it just didn't make sense that I was just putting it in a cardboard box and sending it off. I'm like going, no, I, I want I want you to start caring for it as soon as you get it. Yeah. Put it in something that, that, that shows its value to you, you know? Right, totally. 
uh, one question, because uh, this sort of goes back to the tension rod thing and and ultimately the snare bed, um, which we didn't get too much into. Um, I have had a, a weird experience with a snare drum that I got, and uh, it was a fairly deep um, a snare bed, but I think not very long. So the talk about a tuning difference to try to get the head correct on the opposite sides of the snares themselves uh, was a problem with it. And I ended up getting rid of it because I just didn't like the particular design of that snare bed. But with yours, yours are, are, are uh, more wide to my understanding. So what is, I guess, the, the, the advantage in sort of designing them as such? Well, I think it's drummers. What I find with a lot of drummers that I talk to is there there is a lack of understanding about what a snare drum is and how it works. Now, here's the thing. What makes a snare drum a snare drum? Well, it's a special effect drum. Mm. Otherwise, it's just a shallow tom. Right. So what makes it a snare drum? A combination. The snare beds, the snare set, meaning the wire itself. And I'm including the, the means of attachment in that. And, of course, the snare bed. Mm-hmm. And uh, the easiest way for me to explain it is, and the reason why I have always used a deeper, wider snare bed mm-hmm. is because if you, and I demonstrate this when I do these workshops, two things. First, if you take a snare side head and you put it on a 14-inch floor tom and you hit it, it makes a sound that everybody can hear in their head. It goes plink. Mm-hmm. You put it on a, a drum with a snare bed that has those distortions that we call snare beds. Guess what? It makes the same sound because mm-hmm. it's not a resonant head. It's mm-hmm. a special effect head. That right. is a big difference. And once you get your mind around that, it's like, oh, okay, this is different. So by that same token, if you take a set of snare wires, and you can picture this, hold the set of wires by the straps on a floor tom and start applying uh, uh, pressure and tension, you realize that the only thing that you're doing is stretching the wires horizontally. You're not actually doing anything vertically mm-hmm. to, to uh, adjust the interface. And so when you have a drum that has a shallow snare bed, and there's a lot of them out there, yeah. and they've made uh, the success of Danette has a lot to do with the misunderstandings of companies we don't understand what a snare bed is or what it does or how it works. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but when you have a shallow snare bed, it doesn't take much before you actually run out of that vertical travel. And that's why on a lot of snare drums, it's like it's got a really narrow sweet spot. This is too sloppy. Sounds like it needs to get tightened. Half a turn, there it is. Any tighter, now you're just applying. Once you run out of that vertical space, all you're doing is stretching the wires horizontally and when you start stressing a spring which is what a snare is it's a spring mm-hmm. and, and you start applying that stress the wire gets stiffer because it's under stress and you create a phenomenon that we've come to know as choking right and you know kudos to uh, rogers who thought that um had this idea that they didn't need a snare bed they were wrong there but they were the first guys to actually create a system where you had independent vertical and horizontal adjustment. So you could te- you could apply tension to the wires horizontally and at the same time vertically. Problem mm-hmm. was they didn't have a snare bed. So ah. they really needed that. So <laughs> you, you take a Rogers system and you apply it to a drum that has a snare bed, bang, you got an absolutely perfect system. Wow. But f- fortunately for us, the hybrid that we have, which is like a standard throw off with, with snare wires and straps, that actually works really well. Wow, man. Well, as far as some, I've spoken to a few drum companies and getting sort of proprietary hardware is always a big expense, especially if they started more recently. Uh, and so I was kind of going to ask you about like the throw off on the snares and sort of the process of, of getting to that point where you had a throw off that you thought really worked. And I didn't even ask you because you've mentioned engineering, but do you have an engineering background? No. Okay. Unless you want to call tinkering on my uncle's tractor uh, an engineering degree but um it must have worked somehow for you you must have a, a, a mechanical slash engineering uh, inclination at the very least i would say <laughs> yeah well hey thanks for that i just find that um you know in the last couple of years i've partnered up with some um with some cad people um uh, who 
have really been able to articulate my ideas awesome. better th- yeah. than I ever could. So it, things are moving ahead exponentially gotcha. that way. So Awesome. As far as the design of the throw-off, I've sort of seen some video of it, uh, and it looks like it, it tilts, it, it spins uh, almost like 180 degrees. Am I wrong in that? Yep, that's exactly it. The whole point of that was um, years ago when I started working with a, another throw-off manufacturer out of Seattle, uh, the the position of the lever was static, and I've always preferred one a throw-off that flips out away from the drum, mm-hmm. you know, like a Noble and Cooley or, uh, you know, any of those of, of that particular type. Yeah. And so I was holding it in my hands, and I went, wouldn't it be great if you could just, how could I do this? And, and in the process of turning that thing, I went, well, I can just frame this up as an axle. I can put this in here and I can make a lever that you can set anywhere you want. And not only can you set it, you can actually fold it out of the way because sometimes throffs protrude a little too far out of the, you know, away from the drum and can be a little cumbersome. But, you know, watching drummers for as long as I did, I realized that some guys like it at the three o'clock position. Some guys want it at six o'clock. Some guys want it at nine o'clock. And I thought, if you could just move it where you wanted it, mm. wouldn't that make sense? Yeah. And so, you know, that idea came together, and that's been an exclusive on on the R uh, R class throw off since since that happened. Nice. And then the quick release, which was, you know, so obvious that it's like I I, I don't want to have to take the snares off. And, and restrap them every time I, I need to change a bottom head, especially if you're in a live situation. It's like, right. it, it just makes life more easier. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, speaking of my old uh, Ludwig Superphonics, the original, the butt plate on the opposite side of the throw-off is uh, literally like a Phillips or a flathead screwdriver adjustment, and it is such a pain in the ass uh, that whenever I get those older drums, I inevitably put newer uh, hardware, be it throw-off and butt plate on them, just to make them a little bit more functional in in a sort of modern context of maybe playing it pretty hard over the course of an hour or so, you know, and, uh, but I love the idea of the quick release. That's, that's genius, man. I love that idea. Well, it, it, I, I, as you we were talking, I was thinking about it and I said, you know what, that's, that is essentially the, 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 the emphasis behind everything that I do and how all of those ideas start. It's like, I'm a drummer first. That's, that's where I started. And, I had equipment that had weaknesses that I saw and I went, I want to be able to fix this. I want to be able to change this. And so what you said right there is how I started. Right. Um, I have one more uh, sort of snare design question for you. Uh, As someone who has, I believe all of my drums are seamed. I don't believe I have any seamless shells, uh, but I know uh, there are some drums out there that that's sort of the selling point. But I I think you kind of touched on a little bit and there are so many variables uh, in which you can get a snare to sound great, be it the heads, tension and everything else that in the end, I have a drum that's very similar in design and that it has, uh, it's for instance, uh, black nickel over brass um and it does have a seam but uh it sounds mighty similar to one of the other ones that that uh, does not have a seam and i know this the not having a seam is sort of a uh, a selling point to some degree but I'm, i have a feeling i already know what your answer is going to be but i'll ask it anyway do you feel as though it, it makes that much of a difference to have a seam or not within a snare drum shell uh my test is always 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 in a blind test could i hear it i've made thousands of drums i've played hundreds of drums i've seen other guys play hundreds of drums can you hear a scene no well you know what it's it's like my hypervent some people think that they can hear a difference between a vented and unvented drum Mm. i can't (laughs) yeah i i I can feel a difference kinetically because you know that's the difference but i i I can't i can't hear it Mm. and I envy the people who, whose ears are that finely tuned that they could actually hear um, the difference. And, right. and you know what? All I say is, hey, there's YouTube. Prove me wrong. Right. Put a blindfold on and, um, and knock yourself out. I, I've seen some of those blind tests. They're always surprising that 
you can't actually. Right. <laughs> totally, man. Uh, we'll get into the George Wade drums. Uh, I know you picked up that, that line. Uh, I was curious as to with your insight and ability to do drums, why, why pick up a pre-existing one in George Wade? What was it about those drums that you wanted to see continue? Hmm. I'm going to pull this answer out, uh, stream of consciousness style. Um, I didn't buy a brand. Mm-hmm. I found something that was incredibly valuable and ended up working very hard to preserve it mm-hmm. and save it. And it's been a labor of love. G- George Way, who I've, in some ways, since, since I first became aware of him and started to learn about him, he's like a, 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 a grandparent that passed away before, while you were young. Mm-hmm. I feel like I know him. I, I do know him through some of his work and ideas. And I understand him to be um, an unsung hero and an unspoken, uh, you know, unrecognized genius. And, and I've said this before, there's not a drummer out there who doesn't owe a debt of gratitude to George Way because it doesn't matter what drum set you're playing right now, you're playing something that he invented. Mm. The, the the swivel the swivel nut in a box lug. He was the first to do that. Mm. In fact, you'll you'll remember uh, the the stories of Slingerland lugs and they had springs inside of them and they would pack them with felt and oh, yeah. they would you know and all of that. I have a I have an early seventies Vistalite. Uh, I had it. It was a nineteen seventy Vistalite. The spring was packed into a foam like substance that was in the lug. Yep. Well, well, we moved away from that. Um, some time ago, where now we basically use these little plastic inserts that hold the uh, the swivel nut in place. Nice. The funny thing was, George invented that before the spring idea. Huh. And it wasn't until people got tired of the springs making noise that they went, hey, we should do this. And George was probably standing there going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I only did that 30 years ago. Wow. And so, you know, and... And he did some other things. He was the first guy to wrap a drum in mm. Marine Pearl. Oh, nice. He was the one who invented the parallel throw-off. Wow. He was the one who introduced and popularized what was then called the Chinese sneeze symbol. We now call it a China. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's just a wealth of, of great ideas. In fact, I'm, I'm, I've been noodling away at a practice pad design that he had that is phenomenal and, and nobody's done it. Hmm. Well, what year did George Way start releasing drums under the George Way design or name rather? Brief history, he started in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He was working at the Pantages Theater in uh, Edmonton, Alberta, which is hmm. where he met his wife and also started working with the caretaker Boilerman there who was also a bit of a machinist designer and he started the advanced drum company making of all things metal drum shells with beads mm. and that's where he got a start had some success there got noticed by Leedy. uh Leedy invited him to come and work with him which he did and you know that was the start of a you know very a, a long successful career working for virtually every drum company of the time wow crazy and uh, i believe he started the george way drum company I'm guessing now my uh, Rob Cook, by the way, I'm going to plug this book, has an excellent book that everybody should read. It's called The Leedy Way. Mm. And um, it's important. Okay. You should get to know your instrument and the history of the instrument, partly because it's interesting, partly because it's not on your phone and um, and it's a fascinating read. But uh, yeah, I'll definitely read it. Sometime in the late 50s, he started George Way uh, Drums, you know, Indianapolis did the Cloud Badge. And then. Uh, Sadly, he, he lost control of his company, John Rashawn, who ran Camco, which was a, a metal production company at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he basically tricked George into, and George's friends and supporters into selling all their shares to him. Oh, damn. And then the story goes, uh, much in the way that you know Ray Ayotte lost control of his company, it's almost a parallel story. Oh, he, he lost control of his company and Camco went on to, you know, become George Way went, went on to become Camco. And of course, you know, that story Camco went through a couple of different iterations 
eventually moved to Los Angeles where they did make some really great drums. Mm-hmm. And then and then the company was uh, sold off with the trademark Camco going to Hoshino, uh, otherwise known as Tama, mm. who made some uh, way-like drums, Camco-like drums for a while, yeah. then dropped it. And, of course, Don Lombardi, uh, my dear friend, picked up the tooling and began his journey, which is a probably the most historic journey of, of one man creating a drum company ever wow. um, to to start DW and, and um, have the greatest respect for everything that, that Don has done and created. It's just been amazing to to look at that and go, this is a, you know, people forget it's, it's easy now. You know, every day it's just another addition to the Rolodex of Joe Blow custom drums. Right. I got nothing against that guy starting their own drum companies and hey, I'm going to do this. But now they got the internet. Back when George started, and when Don started, and even when I started, didn't have access to that. It wasn't easy. You had to yeah <laughs> pick up a phone book. Yeah. Right. And go door to door and find the people and the products and the services that you needed. Wow. Whereas now it's like, wow, I'm just going to get some Keller shells and I'm going to order some, you know, some, some overseas hardware and sure. drum supply and I'm going to do this. And Well, that's interesting that you mentioned the whole George Way, Camco, DW lineage, because it's one of the things that I noticed in those circular lugs. And I hadn't really looked at it, a timeline to really sort of place who might've been there prior to, I kind of assumed that it was Camco and then DW bought them out, or at least that's the history that I'd heard about. But it is definitely interesting, again, for you to make those connections and to have it stem back to George Way. And from the sounds of it, unfortunately, uh, sound like it uh, stemmed from a nefarious and sketchy uh, business dealing that affected him negatively. Which is unfortunate because, one, that happened to him, uh, and two, uh, the history and the lineage of it uh, appears to have been sort of broken off, and it's just not something that you hear so much about, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting for me to go and look at it because I started with the tuxedo lug because that was just the simple, easiest way. And, you know, you always want to be respectful of everybody's intellectual property. But it wasn't until I had done the research that I realized that, you know, it was 1953. And what I didn't realize or understand and what a lot of people don't is that George's first lug that was on George Wade drums and later on Camco and now on DW, that was a variation of the original. Mm. That isn't the original. The, The original is the one that I'm using now and calling the aristocrat lug. Um, uh-huh. That was the first one that jo- that George designed. So that round one w- was secondary, and I'm not sure why. I've talked to Don about it, and there, there's been some stories about how that came to be, which you might find interesting. Yeah. Don was under the understanding that that was um, the shape came from being a a horn cap that you put over, I think, the mouthpiece to protect it. Hmm. Um, that's one idea of one story of how George came up with that shape. The other was that he had a, a stack of um, milk pogs on his desk and was uh, um, absolutely minded talking to someone on the phone and they were stacked in a way that they formed that lug. Interesting. So, and I'll just say this now. I, I, I didn't buy the George Way trademark. I just inadvertently became the caretaker of a very important legacy. And Hmm. I see it as my job now, especially getting some of the historic archives that came with George's estate, that I'm a curator of a museum that is yet to be created. (laughs) Wow. The most important thing that I will ever do in my career is maintain and preserve the history of George and, and Leedy and everything that he did. And, and I hope at some point, um, and I've spoken to Don about this, that there's going to be a way that we're going to be able to hook that uh, George Way train car up to the Camco DW lineage and, and get it all back under one house. I think that would be not only fantastic, but uh, but very appropriate to um, 
to do that. So yeah, I got my fingers crossed. In the meantime, I'll just keep pushing that ball uphill. It's not easy to uh, bring back a heritage drum company and do it in a way that that you can have success. Right. You know, we we've seen some some fail some miserable failures of heritage brands mm. trying to get uh, uh, kickstarted again, and um, your Damn. heart's got to be in it. <laughs> yeah, for real. I mean, are you the primary person uh, making both all of these snare drums and doing these 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 George Way kits as well? Is it is it pretty much just you? Well, I look at it this way. Um, I don't care where anything comes from, as long as it's the best. You mm-hmm. know, when I source anything, I don't care where it's made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking for the cheapest. I'm looking for the best quality. Mm-hmm. And um, in some cases, uh, you know, over the course of George Way, the kits have been um, very, you know, some have been made in Canada. Mm-hmm. Some are some I still make in Canada, some models. Some have been made in the United States. And some are imported. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares anymore. I, I think a lot of people, you know, I, 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 I turned my back on that fight right. a long time ago. Yeah. And nobody cares anymore. It's a it's a weird thing, and I don't understand it. And it never made any difference to anybody. Right. Yeah, right. Oh man, uh, with some of the wood types that are that are used with these George Way kits, uh, I know. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you come from the snare world and using primarily metals, if not exclusively, uh, is it was it a little bit of a challenge, sort of dealing with the resonance and the different uh, uh, elements of of wooden shells? Well. Keeping in mind everything that I've said before, <laughs> when I first started doing this, I have four or five George Way Camco drums, and I took those with me. And I shopped everywhere. I, hey, I went to Keller. I mm-hmm. went to DW. I went to a couple independent shell manufacturers. I said, it's got to be the same. It's got to be the same weight. The plies have got to be the same. I need to duplicate this design. Mm-hmm. And um, it just happened to be that, you know, I, I, I was in uh, Taiwan and was at a shell manufacturer there. And we went over it with a micrometer. We measured it. We weighed it. We did everything. And I said, okay. And uh, I thought it was going to be two or three months until I got a prototype shell. I think it was about a half an hour later. And Whoa. The, the foreman handed me a, a hot shell right off the press and said, like this. And I'm like going, and we put the mic on it. We measured it, we weighed it, and it's like, this is a George Way shell. Wow, that's wild. And, <laughs> I mean, the thing you have to remember is I, I sort of picked up where George left off, but no drum company is caught in a bubble there. You have to – things have improved. You, you can't sure. just keep keep making things with slotted screws. I mean, nobody's going to be happy about that. Right. So I had to eventually start making improvements – that always paid homage to the original, but were improvements. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the 845, the beer tap throw off, that was originally a machined one, would always fall apart, break, bend. Mm. I, I, just, I just die cast it and made it easier to use. Yeah. And and same thing happened with, with the shells. So right now, um, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm refusing to wrap any more drums uh, using uh, a certain suppliers wrap Mm. that's a bit of that's a bit of a beef i have because gotcha it's just it's just going to be trouble but my vision for this company the way i see it is natural woods walnut um beautiful lacquer finishes uh, mahogany um, maple those are never going to go out of style those are those are classics and that's what i want to do i want these drums to be around in a hundred years with all the scars of their life and their stories Mm-hmm. And still going the same way that you look at your vintage drums and go, wow, this is still a great drum. Sure. And so, and just to answer more of your question there, what I've recently discovered is acacia. And I've come to love what that is. I've always loved koa. Mm-hmm. Of course, Hawaiian koa is extremely hard to get. Deadfall wood, you need a license to even get your hands on it. Hmm but there are variations of it and acacia is one of those. Interesting. And, uh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful wood 
to make a drum out of. I've been playing my personal, you know, freshly minted hot red Acacia Aristocrat kit. And, uh, you know, with a Danette titanium with titanium hoops and I'm sitting there playing, I'm going, I'm playing the best set of drums I've ever played in my life. Amazing. Wow. Damn, man. I wish you were closer by. I like hearing you talk about this. I'm like, Oh man, I want to hear this. Oh, uh, but I've heard Ruben Spiker play some of his stuff. And I mean, uh, of course, great player. And that certainly helps. But uh, the the tones of the drums, the snare as well, uh, the whole thing, it, they really are an incredible combination, no doubt about it. Yep. And, and, and I'll throw one other thing in here. And, and uh, yeah, I'm going to pitch it. The, the one thing that, that ties all of that, all of those components together is the Resitone heads, hmm. um, which I, um, you know, they're made by Remo, and th- they just optimize everything that I've done with those aristocrat drums mm-hmm. um, and, and the stick satisfaction out of hitting one of those. I don't know. I've never sat at a drum and just, I just want to keep hitting this 12 inch Tom with the stick because I just want to hear it, <laughs> yeah. um, let alone play it. And sure. y- you know that when you hit that, you're going, okay, this is, you know, this is it. So wow. um, just pu- putting in a plug for those as well. Those are, are fantastic heads. Just nice. introduced the Reso Clear, which is a resonant side specific head. Mm-hmm to be paired with the Resitone. Oh, nice, man. I dig that. And it, it sounds like those are both cool heads, and I definitely like the idea of the two working together. So thanks for the heads up on that. No pun intended, or maybe pun intended. Shit, I don't even know. But uh, I had one last question for you outside of drums, man. When you're not uh, building all these drums and doing all this, uh, you mentioned mountain biking. Uh, do you go out into, like, rural uh, Canada? Do you go out to parks? Do you, do you go canoeing? Do you go swimming, jumping off waterfalls, climbing trees? What do you, what do, you do with yourself, man? No, that's a great <laughs> question and one that I would have to think about. Especially now, I'm, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be 59 in June, and you come to the realization that, that you know, as much as I love drums and working on drums, that my uh, my free time is exceptionally precious right now, and I really guard it. And uh, yeah. I've been using it to yes, enjoy. I, I just bought an e-bike, nice. uh, mountain bike, because. <laughs> My legs are 1962, so I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, but it, but it's been good. It's actually augmented that whole mountain bike experience for me, which I, I used to race back in the day, and oh, so wow. it's it's fun to do that. I Hell yeah. have a few motorcycles that I uh, love and enjoy. I, when I was 50, I bought a, I bought a board track bike and got bitten by the motorcycle bug. So oh boy, I enjoy, I enjoy that. Nice. Yeah, and going out to my farm, going out to the farm. That's the best thing. Do you make the drums out on this farm, or is the farm a separate place? No, the farm's a separate place. That's uh, gotcha. That, that's a place where the only drums out there are the ones that I set up in the barn and 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 rock away at. And by the way, amazing. There are no acoustics for drums like a barn. Oh my oh, god! Oh, I bet, I bet, man. Yeah. I absolutely bet. Man, playing all those beautiful drums in a, in a wood, big old wooden barn or little one, whatever, those old, that old wood, that sounds like an amazing combination for sure. Yeah, yeah, lots of fun, lots of fun. Well, Ron, it was great talking to you, man. I uh, appreciate the time and uh, definitely a fan of the drums. And uh, yeah, man, we'll, uh, we'll have to stay in touch. And uh, man, enjoy your summer. I hope it's a good one for you. Absolutely. I'll just close in mentioning... Um, Again, on the 15th of May, going into the studio here in Vancouver, we're going to do another cam show. I'll be streaming it uh, probably through Facebook. Okay. I'll be there with Ruben. And th- at this point, um, we're going to do some some segments where I'm going to talk about the stuff we talked here about. Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to give some of it away. Awesome. All right, Ron. Well, man, thanks again. And uh, we'll talk soon, my man. Yeah, brother. Thank you again. And, and I really appreciate your interest. And I'm glad you're doing this. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Ron, for rapping. Definitely cool catching up with him and talking about the lineage of the George Way line, George Way himself, and everything from Camco to DW, and of course, his signature snares, of which I'm a major fan. 
and uh, just super cool hearing about the history of all that and the, the long trek it is to, to have a labor of love and pour such time and effort into something that ultimately does represent said time and effort. And that is uh, what Ron does. So gotta love it. We'll catch you all in the next one. Crash, bang, boom. <laughs>